Welcome to our mindfulness podcast. Each week or so, we will have a different podcast, different speakers, different chants, different Dharma talks. But mindfulness practice in Buddhism helps us focus and helps us be aware. And this program will consist of many different ways of meditating. We usually begin with bowing or gasho, then we prepare to sit, and we will sit for approximately 10 minutes. And then we will either stand and walk for another five minutes to kind of get blood into our legs again and and, uh, relax our muscles. And then we'll sit for another 10 approximately. And then we will chant, which is another form of meditation. Uh, We focus on the characters and we pronounce the sounds as a group. And it's a kind of a ritual of oneness. And then after that, we'll have a short Dharma talk of about five to 10 minutes. And then we'll close with Gasho. And this also includes offering incense. We offer incense, but you could also light the incense before the service starts. And this is kind of the program uh, of how our meditation services proceed. And so we will be getting underway today uh, with our program. Thank you very much. We will now have seated meditation. Take a moment to see that your back is straight and centered with your shoulders relaxed. If you're in a chair, It's best to sit forward slightly rather than leaning on the chair back and keep your feet flat on the floor. Try keeping your eyes half open, resting the gaze gently downward without focusing on anything in particular. In the same way, be open to whatever sounds are coming into your ears, whether from inside the room or outdoors. We are not trying to isolate ourselves from the world around us, but rather feel that we're part of that world. If you like, you may count your breaths from one to ten. Inhale deeply. Let it all out. Try slowing down your rate of breathing relative to what it would be at other times. We are not trying to think about anything in particular or visualize anything. We simply watch our thoughts come and go.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. You may stretch your legs and then please stand. We will now have our standing meditation session. Your upper body is in the same position as for sitting meditation. Straight head and spine, shoulders back, eyes half open, hands comfortably positioned in front. Legs should be shoulder width apart with knees slightly bent. Again, rock forward and backward and side to side to find your center. Standing meditation reminds us to take our meditation practice out into the world. Waiting in line at the store, being stuck in traffic, going through TSA security at the airport. Over time, meditation becomes a practice for the body and mind that can be recalled when needed most, in situations that may be merely annoying, perhaps frustrating, or even stressful. We will begin at the sound of the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts, Namo Amidabuts. Return to your seat or cushion. Sitting in this way, we might wonder what purpose we are achieving. Actually, there is no specific purpose. I think it's really to make us aware of what sitting is, what breathing is, standing is. What are these simple activities that we do most of the time without thinking about them at all? We'll begin our second sitting at the bell.
Please put your hands together in Gasho. Bow. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Namo Amidabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. Naman Dabutsu. We will begin uh, sutra chanting. Sutra chanting is actually a portion of a sutra that we will chant. Uh, most sutras are far too long to be able to chant in one sitting. So for us, uh, we're usually chanting a verse out of a longer narrative or prose. And that's why uh, each line consists of perhaps four or five or seven characters. When we chant, we read from left to right, just like in English, and we move down the first column, and then we move to the second column, and so on. Open circles uh, represent bells uh, for the chant leader to ring. So we always begin a sutra chant with two bells. Whenever we change a section, we use one bell to kind of signal that we're changing uh, from one section to another. And then when you end a sutra chant, you always end with three bells. Each syllable here is written in Romanized characters, English characters, and each syllable here represents a kanji, a Chinese character, and it's written phonetically. It's the sound of the character. The vowels have the same pronunciation independent of location or their neighbor. So this is different from English. And the vowel sounds, uh, I've been told, resemble those in Spanish. So we have A, E, I, O, and U. And they're pronounced A, E, E, O, and U. And then uh, you'll see uh, italicized lines. Uh, those are leader lines that I chant alone. And you will also see underlines under some of the characters. And that means that rather than each character getting a single beat, an underlying character will get a beat and a half. And to kind of make up that little extra time, the next character in line will only get a half beat. And what you do is you don't really concern yourself too much about the meaning of what's being chanted. This isn't flashcards. We're not trying to learn something. This is a ritual. And so we chant together as a feeling of oneness. Don't worry too much about how you're doing. Be aware and mindful of each character. Uh, this is a form of meditation. Uh, rather than silent meditation, we're meditating through sound. So, you know, you see the character, you say it, you forget about it, you move on, and you say the next character. And over time, it becomes effortless, and you'll begin to memorize it uh, without realizing it. We will now chant Ju Sege. Say food. 
Please put your hands together in Gasho and bow. Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts, Namo Amida Buts. Hello, this is Reverend John Turner, and I wanted to talk again about the baskets of texts in Buddhism. We earlier discussed the three baskets, 
And today I would like to talk a bit more detail about the Vinaya, the basket of precepts on how monks can live in a communal setting. So I talked before that there's a website called Buddhism by Numbers. It's a chart that details all of the numbered lists within Buddhism. It has 215 entries organized by the quantity of the list and then in alphabetical order within that quantity. There's lists of twos and threes and fives and eights and twelves. So when you hit the twos, you get the two attachments and then you get the two adornments. And of these 215 entries, there are 48 lists that come in threes alone. And one of them is what we talked about before, the three baskets. The Vinaya, precepts for mendicants, the sutras, the teachings of the Buddha, and the Abhidharma, the commentaries on these sutras. These are called the three baskets because Buddhist texts were literally placed into one of three baskets. The Vinaya was how monks are to live together. The sutras were the words of the Buddha. And the Abhidharma, Abhi meaning concerning, and Dharma meaning the teachings, is the text basket of commentaries where monks would explain and expand on the meaning of specific sutras. It is interesting to note that this love of numbers and detail does not end here. You can also find it within the Vinaya, with 227 rules for monks and 311 for women. The sutras we talked about contain over half a million pages. And while the Dhabidharma would contain even more than that, because one sutra could have many commentaries written on it. Today, I think we'll focus first on the Vinaya basket. These 227 and 311 rules are a lot to remember and follow. Most assume in America that these rules outline the moral and ethical character necessary to be a Buddhist monk or nun. I thought this was where one would go to find the Buddhist position on, say, capital punishment or the rules for society. But I was surprised. Instead, they are much more like the rules at a UCLA dormitory. They are designed to help make communal living orderly and reduce friction and make it efficient. Only four of the rules require expulsion, while the rest require confession to the group. Sensual misconduct, stealing, killing, and lying about one's spiritual attainment were grounds from expulsion, while all others required confessing the violations at a publicly held meeting. These four serious violations are called the rules of defeat. At UCLA, going outside your room and standing on the ledge of the window is immediate grounds for expulsion, while playing your music too loud only required confession and contrition. I witnessed the former, and I had committed the latter. These less severe monastic precepts are also not based upon criminal law, but rather on case law. That is, they weren't determined as an unlawful act beforehand. Instead, if a monk behaved in a way that caused friction, then it was reported to the Buddha. Then, he was often compelled to create a new rule to prohibit that behavior in the future. What is so interesting is that this gives us a window into the actual monk's behavior and what they were doing within the monastery walls. For example, 
I found these following nine rules concerning footwear alone. Number one, you cannot wear wildly decorated shoes. Number two, you can wear shoes with many linings if they were donated. You cannot wear shoes if your teacher is not. You can wear shoes if one has severe blisters. You can wear shoes to get up on couches or chairs. You can wear shoes to avoid thorns. You cannot wear noisy wooden shoes. You cannot wear shoes made of leaves. And you cannot wear shoes made of grasses. This illustrates that monks were human beings just like the rest of us. First, someone is wearing sandals that are much too ornate, and it was upsetting, so the Buddha had to outlaw it. Then someone, who had really bad blisters, asked if they could wear sandals with soft linings. It was allowed, but only if they were not fancier than their teacher's shoes. Then another student developed serious sores, so it was allowed again. You can also wear shoes to protect couches from one's dirty bare feet and to avoid thorns, even if your teacher did not. But some wore really heavy wooden shoes to avoid thorns, so this was disallowed. Then monks started to stuff leaves into their shoes, so this was not allowed. But then other monks started stuffing grasses into their shoes to protect them from thorns, since technically grasses are not really leaves. But the Buddha had to restrict the use of grasses, thus removing the loophole. This provides an intimate view into the inner workings of the monastery. I also get the feeling that the Buddha grew a bit weary of the monks bringing every little quibble to his attention, requiring him to establish yet another rule. This is why I think the monastic precepts read a little bit like the U.S. tax code. This may also help to explain why lay Buddhists do not focus too much on this basket. It is not due to a lack of religious discipline. Instead, it is because we do not live in a communal setting. Instead, we focus on creating harmony within our families as we practice together. Thank you very much. Please join me in Gasho. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Amidabuts. Namo Today's program was presented and produced by the Buddhist Education Center of Orange County Buddhist Church. This program is copyright 2022 by the Orange County Buddhist Church, Anaheim, California, USA. All rights reserved.